I wonder uh, if you think your Christian faith is a bit iffy. You're not quite sure about it. Uh, You don't really know what you believe or how much you believe. Maybe you wonder if you believe enough. See, if we're saved by faith, then do we have to have a certain amount of faith in order to be saved? Have I got enough faith to be saved? How do I get more faith? Do you look at other Christians and think, I wish I had their faith? And then wonder if you really do wish that, because you know that if you did have that faith, you'd have to be a lot more committed than you are now. Do you wonder if you will see things through to the end? Will you make it to the end of the journey? Will you still be following Jesus when you reach the end of your life? Iffy faith. The passage from Romans that we're looking at this morning is a bit iffy. Well, in the sense that there are four ifs in these six verses. Verse 13 has two of them. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 17 has the other two ifs in the passage. Now, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. If, 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 it's about whether we die or whether we live. It's about whether or not we are God's children. Maybe that makes you feel as if your faith is even more iffy. How can I know if I am God's child? How can I know if I'll live or die? Paul says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Well, my guess is that even the most holy amongst us whoever you are, I know it's not me, and perhaps especially the most holy amongst us, will recognize that there are times when they live according to the sinful nature. Does that mean even they will die? Can we ever do enough after all? Maybe it's all a bit iffy. Well, before we get ourselves into even more of a muddle and end up fearing the worst, Maybe we need to get ourselves into Paul's mindset here to try to understand the picture he's painting, the story he's telling. And he is telling a story, or or rather he's making reference to a story that his first readers would have been very familiar with. And that story may be one that we're familiar with too. Many of us will be. And it's the story of the Exodus, of Israel's journey through the wilderness from slavery in Egypt to the promised land and freedom. And he's saying that that story helps us to understand our story, because in many ways it has become our story. When I say story, I don't mean it's made up. I mean it's an account of a series of events that began in Egypt and ended on the other side of the Jordan River. It's the account of a journey made by a whole nation of people. It's the kind of story we're seeing unfold before our eyes on the television news of desperate people 
fleeing an awful situation in the hope of finding a better life somewhere else. Though sadly, all too often, their story is ending in slavery, in bondage to people traffickers, or worse still, in death. It's a kind of reverse Exodus story, from awful to even worse. Stories help us recognize who we are. They help us interpret our lives. And I believe that's one reason why soap operas like Coronation Street and EastEnders are so popular. For many people, they're the only stories they relate to outside of their daily lives. The only stories that reflect back to them what life is like and what the consequences of certain sorts of decisions might be. In other words, they're the only stories they access that help them to interpret their lives and where they're going. We all have a a life story, and our life story is part of a much bigger story. We're characters in a bigger story, and it matters a great deal which story we find ourselves in. So, back to this passage in Romans. Paul is using this story of the Exodus to help his Christian readers, and that includes us, understand our own story, the lives where they were leading, our lives and where they're leading, the story of which we have become part. Let's then begin to take a closer look at these verses and what they're telling us about this story. In verse 14, Paul says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now, you may remember, if you're familiar enough with the Exodus story, that the Israelites were led by God through the wilderness by a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. And it was God's way of assuring them of His presence with them and of leading them forward on that journey they were on. And God has come even closer to us. He is leading us in an even more intimate way. Our sense of His holy presence with us is closer than a breath far closer than they knew back then. He makes His dwelling within each one of us through His Holy Spirit, and He makes His presence known in our midst through His Holy Spirit. So, staying with that picture, here we are on a journey, just as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness. They journeyed from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land, And we are journeying from slavery to sin. Sin used to be our master. Whether we realized it or not, our sinful nature controlled us. We were set in rebellion against God, and we were enthralled to unhelpful and destructive desires. We allowed them to lead us to control the direction of our lives. They were what lay at the heart of our motivation. We were slaves to sin. We couldn't beat it. Even if we tried, they always got the better of us. But we've been set free from that by the blood of Christ, just as the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. But does that mean that they never thought of going back to Egypt? 
that they never hankered after the life they had then, especially when the going was tough for them in the wilderness, especially when the journey seemed relentless and the way was so hard. Well, yes, they did. And there may be times when we find the going tough, so tough that we wonder how long we can go on, when we think, well, maybe life would be easier without faith. Maybe life would be easier if I gave up the fight. Maybe it would be easier. Jesus never promised us it would be easy. He said it would be tough. Yeah, it might be easier, but it would not be greater. I, I would say that without that, life would be directionless. But Paul doesn't actually give me that option. He says there is a direction to it. It leads to death. It's going somewhere. But that's not our situation, and that's not our destination. Paul says in verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. We are no longer slaves. We've been set free. We don't have to fear, live in fear of a master's sin that's ultimately going to destroy us. No, Paul says, we, we're not slaves. Far from it. He goes on. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, isn't it interesting that our TNIV Bibles with a gender-inclusive language do not at this point, as you might expect, say, brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. Now, the reason they don't is not because that phrase is clumsy and too much of a mouthful. It is, as a footnote in our Bible helpfully points out, for this reason— the Greek word for sonship is a term referring to the legal, full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. And remember, Paul is writing to Rome, Christians in Rome, and in that culture, a wealthy person could adopt someone and make them the heir of their fortune. And it's that nuance here that the translators don't want to lose and for good reason, as the rest of the passage makes clear. We are no longer slaves, but children, adopted children of the living God, the God who created the universe. As many of you are aware, we have two adopted sons, Andrew and Paul. They're not natural siblings, but they love each other as brothers, and we couldn't love them more. Andrew came home to us first, and then Paul a couple of years later. There comes a time in the adoption process when you have to go before a judge in the family court, and it's that judge who has to make the decision as to whether or not to make the permanent adoption order. So we went off to court with Andrew first. It was a big day for us, a very special day. And obviously our prayer was that it would go well and the adoption would be settled there and then. There came a point in the proceedings when the judge said, now before I sign the adoption order, there's something that you need to understand. Once I sign this, the adoption is irrevocable. 
That means it cannot be changed or reversed. Nothing can change it. Once it's signed, the adoption is permanent. He then turned to Andrew and said, Do you understand that? Yes, replied Andrew. And do you want it to happen? Yes, said Andrew. And he asked us the same questions. And we said a very definite yes to both. The adoption order was signed. Now, when it came to a point, the point a year later or so, when we were in the same court with our second son, Paul, the judge went through the same procedure. Once I sign this order, the adoption is irrevocable. And then he turned to Paul and he asked, do you know what irrevocable means? At which point Andrew raised his eyes to the ceiling, gave a sigh, and said to the judge, you mean that you don't even know what irrevocable means? (laughs) It means it cannot be changed or reversed. Once this is done, it's permanent. He quoted the judge almost verbatim what he had said a year before. Clearly that word irrevocable meant a great deal to him. Maybe it should to us too. As an addendum to that story, it meant a great deal to Jane and I that both at his wedding last year and at his son's baptism a couple of weeks ago, he chose Father God I Wonder as one of the hymns. And now I am your child, I am adopted in your family. The Spirit of God assures us that we are God's children. We even cry out to God and call Him Abba, Father. But note in that family story, Andrew had to say yes to the judge. Yes, I want to be adopted into this family. Paul had to say, yes, I want to be adopted into this family. And maybe there's someone here today who doesn't have that deep, heartfelt assurance that they are God's child because they have never actually said yes to God. Yes, I want to be forgiven. Yes, I want to be freed from slavery to sin. Yes, I want to follow Jesus from now on and profess Him as Lord. Yes, I want to make that journey with you. Yes, I want to become part of this amazing eternal story, which is your story and the story of your people. Maybe you just need to say yes to God. Yes, I want to be your child. That's faith. That's enough faith. It's not complicated. It's simple. Well, at least that bit is. But that's not the end of the story. Neither is it the destination of the journey. It's the beginning of the story. And God has not promised us that the journey will be easy. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if. That's the second of the two ifs in that verse if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus' earthly life and ministry was also a journey. 
a journey that was leading all the time in one direction, the direction of a hill outside of Jerusalem and a simple wooden cross where he was to be crucified. And he told his first disciples, and he tells us would be, his would-be followers today, whoever, whoever wants to be a disciple, my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? The journey involves leaving behind, as all journeys do, leaving behind living for ourselves, leaving behind being driven by whatever whim or desire may catch us at any given moment. One of the problems the Israelites faced as they journeyed through the wilderness was that they were often tempted to look back rather than to look forward. They were tempted to look back and hanker after life in Egypt rather than look forward with confidence to what lay ahead of them the better land of freedom and abundance and all that God had promised them. Paul in this wonderful chapter is encouraging us to keep moving forward, forward to not the promised land, not even a bodiless existence in heaven, but to a renewed creation in which we, God's people, will inherit the restored earth and we will be given resurrection bodies no longer subject to disease and decay and death. And he's saying, live more and more as citizens of that new creation to which you are journeying, rather than citizens of the old creation you have left behind. To live in the old creation can only lead to death. To live in a new creation is life. Live as characters in God's amazing love and life story rather than the old sin and death story you've left behind. So let's finish briefly by going back to the beginning of the passage, to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if, by, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's the two ifs again. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So is it all a bit iffy after all? Can we never really tell if we'll make the journey or even if we're on the journey? How do I, a person who continues to sin and gets it wrong, know whether I'm living according to the sinful nature or if I'm living by the Spirit? Well, let me ask you to consider a few things. Are you more aware now than you were before of things in your life that, were wrong, that are wrong and that you want to see changed? Are you, however meekly, however tentatively, striving to become more the person God meant you to be? Do you sense a new power to do that? 
Are you, however, faintly aware that you are God's child and he loves you enough to die for you? Can you recognize Jesus Christ as the risen Lord? If you answer yes to those questions, then you are already on that journey. You are already God's child, one of his adopted family. You will one day share in the glory of Christ. You have the Spirit of God in you. You can call God Abba, Father. There's nothing iffy about that, because it's down to God. God, the Holy Spirit, who leads us. God, the Abba Father, who loves us. And God, the Son, who died for us. All we have to do is say yes to Him. Embark on that journey of life with Him and become part of His amazing story. Let there be nothing iffy about our yes to God.